Maybe you've had a, a few thoughts recently where you've said, Ugh, there's just so much injustice. This is not fair. Well, this is Emma Riley. Uh, she grew up in Northern Ireland. This isn't Emma Riley. That's a tree. <laughs> but Emma Riley is coming. She'll be on the screen. There she is. And uh, she grew up in Northern Ireland, so she knew uh, what division looked like. She knew what a little bit of conflict looked like. And she worked very hard to land a, a UN job. And she was working for the UN for several years uh, when she reported something that she thought was pretty standard. She uh, recognised that when the uh, meeting was to take place with some uh, Uyghur representatives in China and oppressed and persecuted people there, uh, that uh, it wouldn't be appropriate to respond to the Chinese government who asked if they could um, get the names of those people. She said, no, that's not going to be appropriate because it will put them in danger, or it could do. But her boss said, no, no, we should. We should give the names, that's absolutely fine. And when she reported it, um, actually, she found herself sidelined from the role. She found herself pushed out. She found uh, that it wasn't long uh, before the UN had actually sent some police to her door in Switzerland and they had tried to get her sectioned. She couldn't believe it. She was one of these people who was so passionate about what she did and she loved the UN. She loved that she had the opportunity to work for the UN, this organization that is supposed to be about peace and prosperity. It's supposed to be about human rights. It's supposed to be protecting people. And she couldn't believe it that that very organization seemed to be shutting her down. You might have seen the pretty damning documentary called Whistleblowers Inside the UN. It wasn't just her. It went on and on with whistleblower after whistleblower being shut down, discredited and lied about in attempts to cover up corruption and abuses of power within the UN. Cover up of a cholera outbreak which killed 10,000 people in Haiti, a money laundering scheme between the UN and Russian officials with large environmental funds. Cover up of rape and other sexual assaults, including against minors by peacekeeping forces in Africa and Haiti. A misogynistic culture where senior officials were giving jobs out to young women for sexual favours. When it's reported, the boys club find a way to squirm out and shut it down. All of these whistleblowers were cast aside in different and shocking ways. And almost all of them were forced out of the organization. This is the UN. It's supposed to be good. It's supposed to be an organization tirelessly working on behalf of the oppressed. Israel was supposed to be a nation for God. A light to the nations. Doing what is right and good devoted in love to God and his ways, and yet Asaph, the worship leader in Psalm 73, finds that many are wicked. And it is those very people, like those who are holding positions of power 
in organizations where corruption is taking place are prospering. Maybe you felt a bit like that this week. Maybe as you heard the Bank of England announcements and the warnings of what's to come, you were checking what the interest rate increase meant for your mortgage payments. And you had a look at uh, at that hope that you had for buying a house this year or the next or in the future. And you thought, man, it's getting further and further away, harder and harder and harder. It's harder to fill my car. It's harder to keep my home. It's harder to feed my family. All the while, oil and gas companies have increased their enormous profits by an average of 127% compared to the same time last year. With some increasing profits of more than four times that of last year. Maybe you've done the right things at work. You've had integrity. You've, You've not cut corners. You don't just perform when the boss is around. You do what's right. But it's those who don't really add much value day to day, but have a lot of hot air that comes out of their mouth when they're speaking to a manager, or they are uh, the kind of people who spring into action when the right people are around. It's those who are prospering in your work. Similar to Asaph, it could be the church that's disappointed you. Maybe you've looked around and you thought, man, I want to be radically committed to God. I want to be all about him. I want to be a radical community of God. I want to do this together with people who love God and love one another and love this city. And then I look around and I think, maybe, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe, and you feel let down by even the church. The pure in heart at the beginning of Psalm 73 are the ones who act with integrity Goodness inside and out. In verse 1, the pure of heart are being contrasted to the people in verse 3. We're just going to read it in a second. The arrogant. And they seem to be the ones prospering. I mean, what's that all about? Lord, what's happening? How is it that these people can prosper while I'm doing all the right things? How corrupt is this world? How can you let this happen, God? Asaph is outraged. But by the end of the psalm, he teaches us to come warts and all before God and finds that in God, there is a different perspective, a greater perspective. There is something in the midst of injustice that can give us hope in the confusion of an unjust world there is someone who is just and all things will be made right through him let's read Psalm 73 Lindsay's going to come and do that for us now surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence, for their callous, from their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire before beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy who, all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So while Asaph is choosing to do justice, do the right things, to love God, to love people, there are a lot of people around him who are not doing it. And the worst thing about it, through it, they are prospering. It's outrageous. Faith in God is often hijacked for self-gain, as if there is nothing to fear of God. What is God but an abstract idea anyway? An idea to control the people. The 1st of June 2020, Donald Trump had BLM protesters cleared from outside of the White House because he wanted a photo up with a Bible in front of St. John's Church. Faith hijacked. Asaph complains, these people are so arrogant, so inflated with self-interest and self-importance that they, they want, they'll do anything they want. And they scoff at you, God. How can you let them do this? 
They mock you. They speak ill of your faithful servants. They, they do it all for self-gain. And, and the worst bit is their works. Where are you, God? What kind of God are you? How could you allow this? I thought that you opposed the proud and gave grace to the humble. Man, Asaph is struggling here. Now, Asaph is one of Israel's primary worship leaders. I mean, he's a big deal. If he was around today, he'd have millions of YouTube hits, okay? This guy was a a brilliant, skilled, gifted worship leader. The kind of guy that was guiding thousands to come and worship God at once at the festivals and at the tabernacle. Surely not this guy. Surely he could not fall. I mean, he's the kind of guy that you look at when he's leading worship and you think, wow, he's just so close to God. I mean, that is like a whole different world, a whole different level. And yet here he is. He's increasingly frustrated to the point that he almost slips off the mountain of faith. He's clinging on for dear life. Ironically, out of that frustration, at the arrogant, with their callous hearts, verse 7, his own heart is being hardened toward God. It starts with such pure intentions. But the more he's frustrated at the hard-hearted and the arrogant, the more he becomes distant from God. As Robert Robinson penned in his 1758 hymn, We've all sang it. If you've been to church before, you'll have sang it. Come thou fount, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So what do we do? When we're angry, when we're frustrated at the injustice around us, what do we do when life is so cruel and unfair? How do we start to even deal and process with that kind of stuff. I'm just going to take us through some things that Asaph does that can really help us. You're feeling that, like that right now? There are some steps that you can take. First thing is pray honestly. Pray honestly. And you'll see that this whole theme is prayer, right? So our whole theme in, uh, throughout the Psalms uh, this summer It's out of the depths, and we're praying with the psalmists. Okay, so we're going to pray with Asaph now. Bring him your complaints. Be honest before God. He can more than deal with your raw honesty. He knows your every thought anyway. Even when your prayers are reduced to, uh, if you're even there, God, do it. Keep praying honestly. Lord, I'm not even sure you're there. Lord, I'm not even sure you're good. Pray honestly. Second thing is don't make every prayer public. Now that might surprise you. We're in an age of authenticity. That means you share everything. That means everything in your heart should be shared and that's genuine and honest and real. Let me tell you something. God can handle it. Not everyone can. 
there is some wisdom to be had there where we say, I, I, there are definitely people in my life I want to share everything with. But you don't necessarily need to get up on a Sunday morning, for instance, and tell me everything or tell us all everything you're struggling with. That wouldn't be wise. Verse 15, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. So there's concern for others in the way that we, uh, the way that we share and who we pray with. So when we pray, yes, we must be completely and utterly honest before God. He sees it all anyway. He loves you. He loves you where you're at with all of that going on. But at the same time, find people close to you you can pray that way with, who you can trust, who are able in that moment to, to receive and take that and carry that with you, but don't necessarily share it with absolutely everyone. There are appropriate spaces. Choose wisely. Number three, avoid pretend prayers. Avoid the pretense. We all do this, don't we? We pray the prayers that we think we should pray instead of the prayers that are really, truly honest in our hearts. We try to understand like Asaph did in verse 16. And when he was trying to understand everything, it made him weary. It troubled him, it says. Doubt and disillusion are exhausting. They really are. But you can keep clinging on. And the only way that you will cling on is not by your own strength, you're not by your own power. It can feel like it is. And that's what Asaph's describing. It feels like I'm on the edge of a cliff. It feels like my foot is slipping. It feels that way. And you're going to be desperate to try and understand that and do everything you can to fix that. Okay, well, how do, I, how do I move? How do I position myself better? How do I understand what's going on so that I can grab the right bit? But he realizes something enormously important. Nothing, nothing will truly change by your own understanding. It is not until you call out, not just call out to God, but receive from God. So that's number four. Don't just talk. Receive. There's got to be a moment that comes where your posture changes. Listen, guys, there's all sorts of stuff out there that you can do, okay, to make yourself feel better for a short time. But the only thing that's really going to change your heart, the seat of your desires... The very, your very being is God himself. We've got to get ourselves to a posture where we are laying ourselves down before God and saying, God, you need to take this from me. I don't understand it all, but you are of infinite wisdom. And I'm going to lay myself down before you. And I'm going to surrender myself. Robert Robinson, in his hymn, continues... Take my heart, Lord, oh, take and seal it. We need moments like that where we say, Lord, take it, take it from me. Take my heart. You do the changing. For Asaph, there was no understanding, no relief, till he says, I entered the sanctuary of God. There is a huge difference 
between talking to God and receiving from God. When we receive from God, what we're really doing is giving up control. We're saying, I need you to hold me and lift me up, Lord. And I'm going to trust you for that. Instead of trying our best to cling and keep climbing and do everything I can to understand it and make it right. In his sanctuary was God's commands. Right in the heart of the tabernacle and in the, in the future it would be in the heart of the temple was the, the word of God inside the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of stone. And the reason for that is because it is God's revelation that we need. Not some really smart person. No, no, we need God's revelation. We need to understand what he is saying. He is the one who can transcend through the cultures, through time, through knowledge, through all of the different things that we distract ourselves with. And only he will provide what we really, truly need. And there we find true perspective. And you know, the difference in Asaph is remarkable. Now he sees, I was a brute beast before you, he says. He realized that he was so foolish. He realized he was just being so daft. Why am I jealous of those living for a dream that's over in a moment? My God is everlasting. My God is more. He's better. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. My God is the creator. My God loves me. My God is incomparable. God jolts us out of our pity parties and awakens us to his goodness. I'm not on slippery ground. He is holding me. It felt like I was falling off the cliff and I was on the slipperiest of ground that I was about to be cast down and gone forever. But do you know what? The whole time God was holding me, I'm not the one who is on slippery ground. It is these people I was envious of, these people who are prospering through their wickedness, these people who are after their own self-gain and not the glory of God. They are the ones who are on slippery ground. They're like the drunk who comes out in the middle of a winter's night, comes out of the pub, decides to take the shortcut, and their shortcut is straight over the frozen lake. They don't even realize they're on it. They're singing away. They're frivolous. They, they think they're in no danger at all. But the truth is they're in grave danger. We are not the ones on slippery ground if we have put our faith in Jesus, if we've put our faith in God. Number five, pray the truth. Pray the truth. Verses uh, 18 and 19 say, Remember how the enemy has mocked you, O Lord, how foolish people have reviled. That's Psalm 74. Let's not, it's not, not that one. Hold on. Yeah, that's right. Okay, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly 
are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Nothing in this world, no injustice, goes unaccounted for. Nothing. It can feel like that. It can feel like people are getting away with murder, sometimes literally. But the truth is, with God, there is not one thing that will be swept under the carpet. Not one thing. His holy nature does not allow it. Good news. Justice will be done. Righteousness will prevail. So we've got to pray the truth of God's justice and have our hearts changed. That we would see the world as God sees the world. But one of the wonderful things about having your heart changed to see the, way the, uh, the world the way that God does is not just that God is just, he is also merciful. And you see that actually you were a brute beast before God. That you didn't deserve his mercy and his love. You didn't do anything to achieve that. Your righteousness and your pure heart are gifts given through God. And God did that, we now know. Asaph had, it, had the hope of it to come. But we now know that Jesus, on the cross, caused judgment and mercy to meet. No, there will be no sin, no injustice that is unaccounted for. But Jesus will be the one who is punished for us. He has been punished for us. So maybe you're someone who thinks, actually, I've been cheating the system. Good news. Turn to Jesus and he forgives. Or maybe you're someone who thinks that you in some way are perfect, like that you don't have to come before God and explain yourself. There's good news for you too. God can humble you, help you to realize you too have fallen short and Jesus has taken on your sin and shame on the cross he's dealt with it and he's cast it as far as east the east is from the west he's forgiven you he loves you and you can be with him forever and so now we get to see the world like that we get to look out on the world. We get to look on the people who have caused us wrong. And instead of only wanting justice, we don't just want justice. We want mercy and love. We want to love our enemies, as Jesus calls us to do. What a turnaround. Only God can do that. Only God can find a way to truly deal with all of that sin. Not just sweep it under the carpet, pretend it's not there, but truly deal with it so that we can be loved and love. And for those who turn to him, he is always with them. That's why 
in verse 23, Asaph can say, I am always with you, speaking to God. You can say that too. Even when he feels so distant, even when it feels like you've just been going through this most terrible time, you're in despair, you can't bear it any longer, God is still with you. He still loves you. Number six, pray for enjoyment. Too often we come to prayer with little expectation. But what is our true reward? Who is our true reward? It is God. Billionaires, executives at oil companies, those playing the game at your work, the one who turns up to church whenever it suits them while you faithfully arrive on time and pick up their slack, your neighbor who takes advantage of your kindness, all of it can be tolerated, not just tolerated, more than that. You can actually be Christ-like in the way that you behave towards them. You can love them because you know in the end your reward is what was behind that curtain in the sanctuary. Your reward is better than billions of pounds. Your reward is better than accolades. Your reward is better than the promotions. Your reward is God himself. So when we come to prayer and we know that we have access into his presence, we should come with excitement because we are coming into the glory of God. We are coming to meet with our maker in his holiness, but with love and a welcome that is like no other. We can come and we can be with God. God is our joy. God is our home. God is our refuge. God is our reward. God is the one who will give you everything you need. I was embittered, he said. But now when I see my reward, my portion, he says, I have it all in him. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you have it all. You have all you need. Let me remind you of what verse 26 says. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Number seven, pray with a bigger vision. So often, we are distracted and pulled away from God by things that are always smaller than Him. They're never as good as Him. Verse 24, guide me to glory. At first in glimpses of glory, before we meet Him face to face, like seeing in a mirror dimly, as 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, until its fullness comes. And that day will come when we will see Jesus face to face, when we'll be with him, the one who satisfies us like nothing else, we will meet him. We will be with him. And there is nothing, nothing that compares. Pray with a bigger vision. And that bigger vision is God. It's his glory. Live for his glory. 
Don't live for all these things that people have around you. Don't be envious of those. Don't live to get a little snatch of them. No, live to the glory of God. Pursue his glory. Asaph points to heaven and to earth in verse 25 to say that all this, all that you see, no matter how good it gets for people, and even in heaven, none of it, none of the the created stuff, no matter how good it is, is anything in comparison to what we have in God. We can look around, can't we, and think, wow, wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't, isn't that over there? I'd love that car. Like, imagine that life. I'd love to be married to them. I'd love to, I'd love to go on this amazing cruise I've just seen on Instagram. None of it, none of it compares to Jesus, even if it feels sometimes like it does. It doesn't. Pray for trust in his plan. This is our final one. Verse 28. The sovereign Lord is my refuge. The sovereign Lord is my refuge. Only God can be trusted over and over and over and over again. Justice will come. In the meantime, we live in an unjust world, a world that is not yet complete. The kingdom has come but it is not established in full. One day it will be, every part of it. And we need to be able to trust that. We need to be able to trust that Jesus is going to return in thunderous judgment and to make all things new. We need to be able to trust that through all of this, we will one day be with him. We need to be able to trust that even in the midst of all the nonsense, all the rubbish, all the just stuff that we have to deal with every day, all that bad stuff, like there's a lot of it, right? We need to be able to trust that even in that, God is working it out for your good. God is just. In the end, God will use our seasons of doubt and disillusionment to strengthen us. God uses it like a good vaccine to make our faith more resilient and resistant to the ways of the world. Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Doubts can be really good for you. It will not feel like it at the time. But if we go through these steps like Asaph has given us, and there's not a science here, okay? These are just some good suggestions then we will see that God is better. We will come out the other end and we will be stronger for it. Our faith will increase. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, and I, 
I love this because at the end of all of this, what we really want is to be used even more by God. Come through a season like that. We want to see more of him and see how good he is to us. And we see that actually he is better than all of this stuff that has tempted us. In the end, we we want to be more effective for God, more used by God. He says this, when your life is lived to his glory and relying on his sovereign plan, you will, over time, see others around you ask questions of your faith. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Let me just read that again from Bonhoeffer. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. That will happen if over the long and faithful journey that we walk in life with God, we are willing to keep turning back to him. Keep trusting him. We want instant results, don't we? But actually, this is a lifetime of work. And I think one of the ways that as believers, we need to be kind of opposing that culture of entitlement and instant gratification is to say, no, no, this is a long road of every day looking to be just a little bit more like Christ, continuing to trust him, even in the doubt, even in the disillusionment. All right, we do live, don't we, in an unjust world. It is full of cruelty, and there is confusion. But listen to what Asaph says, and this is my prayer for us. But as for me, it is good to be near God, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Why don't we get on our feet? We're going to worship Jesus.